Lord, what a fitting way to begin this message, Lord. An endless hallelujah to the King. We think of a King, Lord. We think of a throne. And this morning, as we dig into your word, we're going to get a glimpse of that throne, that throne room of grace and mercy, throne room of power and might. But it's a throne room where we, your children, can enter and find grace and find mercy in our time of need. And Lord, we're so grateful and blessed to have that in you. So Lord, we just lift up this message to you today, that it would speak to our hearts, that it would heal and comfort and just provide all that we need, Lord. Lord, we lift up the body to you today. Pray for those who are hurting, those who are sick, those who are struggling. We just pray for your hand upon them, Lord. Pray that you'd lead them through it. Pray that they would come into that throne room to find the mercy and grace that they need to help them through this, Lord. We lift up our president to you today, Lord. President who has not had a guided nation through things since the Continental Congress and President Lincoln, Lord. That's the type of things that our leaders have to guide us through today. So we lift him up to you and pray for great wisdom for him, Lord, and direction. We lift up our governor, Governor Wolf, to you. Pray as well, Lord, as not very many governors have ever had to lead a state through something like this. We pray for your hand upon him. We pray for wisdom and, and guidance for him, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that, that that power, instead of corrupting him, Lord, would be used humbly to govern the state of Pennsylvania and the people who live here, Lord, and govern them um, according to what's best for us, Lord. So, Lord, go before us here this morning, and all that we say and do, we ask and pray, and in your name, amen. Amen. Please be seated, and the chitlins can head out to class, the Utes. So good morning. Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Good morning, live stream, our church online. Good morning, Facebook family, friends. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Listen, just a quick... Um, mention, but um, masks. Listen, if you feel comfortable with a mask, please wear it. If you don't feel comfortable with a mask, I'll leave that up to you. Um, no one will ever say anything or think differently of you because you wear or don't wear one, I hope. Um, and, and honestly, the mask serves another purpose in this room. Um, it keeps you a little warmer, doesn't it? <laughs> You're definitely not breathing in cold air. So. I thought about that this morning. I said, eh, people could hear me. I might wear one myself. But uh, I have a face for a mask. But listen, just keep our, our, our president, our, our, our leaders, our governor in prayer because this is a very difficult time, as it, as it is a very difficult time to pastor a church through a time like this. So keep our pastors in prayer and our leaders, our elders. And it's just a, a tough time all around. And. Uh, I know I've never done anything like this, and, and I know that our leaders in Congress and, and in Senate and, and the President and the governors have never done anything like this, so they desperately need our prayers. If you would, open in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 4. Oh, by the way, just one other thing. I know for those of you who don't know, um, every Saturday morning we do go through this place and we do sanitize it. 
So it is sanitized the night before um, that you guys come in here. So we don't just throw caution to the wind. It does get sanitized. All these chairs get sprayed down. All the surfaces get wiped down. So we are doing all that. We have hand sanitizer throughout the building. So I know it's a little late. That mess is a little late in coming. We're a couple weeks into this, but my mother used to say, better late than never, right? So we do take precautions as best we can. So Revelation chapter 4, we're going to cover, Lord willing, chapter uh, verses 2 through 11 this morning. But I just want to take a peek back at chapter 1 real quick. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So Jesus reveals the things which were, things which are, and of course the things which we're going to be studying these next few chapters, which will be. And he gives them through his angel to his servant, John. He signified it by his angel, or we could say he signified it. Meaning that the book of Revelation is full of signs and symbols and imagery, isn't it? And we're going to begin to see that more and more and more as we progress through the book. We're going to see a little bit of it this morning. Um, some of it, of course, is John, a first century saint, trying to explain something that's going to happen in our century. Um, so it's a little difficult. But it does make for some pretty cool PowerPoint slides. Now, remember that this book is not only a revelation of the end times, it's also a revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see him this morning in all his power and all his might and all his glory, seated on a throne. You could say that the book of Revelation is, is Jesus both revealer and the revealed. And this book tells us a lot about who our Lord and Savior is. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this amazing book, as we reveal, as Jesus is revealed to us as we dig into Revelation. Another interesting point. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. At the beginning of chapter 4, there's a door open in heaven. Jesus wants us to open that door to our lives, doesn't he? He wants to come in. He wants to have that all-important time of intimate fellowship with us. But by contrast, we tend to shut that door on him, don't we? Or we tend to just open it a crack and say, okay, Jesus, you have just a little bit of, I could just give you a little bit of access to me, but you can't have the whole thing. There's just some places in my life, some rooms in my life that you can't have access to. By contrast, that door in heaven is always open. That's our access to him. He is always there, always available for us. The author of Hebrew writes, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of, throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4 verse 16. So anytime, anytime we need help, anytime we need his mercy, anytime we need his grace, that door is open. We can always come to his throne room of grace. Always. Why would we need grace? I mean, we know that it's through grace that we're saved, right? Through faith. So we're saved. What do we need grace anymore for? God's grace not only saves us through our faith, but it also helps us walk this walk. We can come to his throne room and find grace to help us in times of temptation, for instance. When we realize we're being tempted, 
the time to act upon that is not before you fall into that temptation, but when you realize you're being tempted, when you realize this is a struggle for you, come into the throne room of grace. And Jesus, who was tempted in all ways as we are, yet did not sin, through his Holy Spirit, will help us overcome that temptation, listen, before we fall, before we give in to that temptation. What's so great about grace is that it's available today. All we need to do is go into the throne room of grace and seek it. And if we're willing to humble ourselves, if we're willing to cry out to God and ask for help, ask for power to help conquer any temptation that we're faced with, any sin that we're struggling with, he will help us overcome it. Today and every day in the life of a believer is a day of grace. Amen? Now I bring that subject up because we find John, the Apostle John, in God's throne room this morning. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, the first part anyway. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. We'll stop there. So John, in the Spirit, goes into heaven, and what he sees from this point on is from a heavenly perspective. He's getting to watch this from the bleachers. And one day we're going to be there as well, watching the tribulation, watching what's going on on this earth in the bleachers. Probably going to be popcorn, soft drinks, and we get to watch what's going on. And we go, man, I knew that was going to happen. But was he bodily transported to heaven? We don't know. Was, we know all from scripture that it says he was transported in the spirit. Whether he was transported bodily, we don't know. And Paul had a very similar experience, didn't he? I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up in the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for man to utter. All we know is that John was in the spirit. And, and wasn't he in the spirit that first, in that first chapter on, on Sunday, the day of the Lord? He was in the spirit when he was shown these things. So John's in the spirit, and he was taken to heaven, and he was shown the throne room of God. Look at the second part of verse 2. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. You can only imagine the grandeur and the, and the splendor of that throne. It's like Paul said, that so inexpressible that words, there's no words to express it. It's so spectacular that that's the first thing John, that catches John's eye as he enters into heaven, is this throne room of God. And that's the point this morning. There is a throne, and God sits on the throne. Now, there's many who struggle with that. Many who struggle with the fact that God's on the throne. And that's something the enemy is very masterful at doing because he wants to sit on the throne of God, doesn't he? He wants to usurp the throne of God. That's been his plan. That's been his desire since the beginning. He wants to pervert what the throne means to believers. Think about what God's throne represents to us. 
It represents the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 66.1 says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It represents God's rule. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 47, verse 8. It represents God's authority. The Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and his left. 2 Chronicles 18, 18. It represents righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face, Psalm 89, 14. God's throne represents eternal life. And he showed me a pure river of, of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Revelation 22, 1. The throne represents God's grace. Let us therefore come boldly to his throne room of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, Hebrews 4.16. For believers, that throne is a source of comfort. It's a source of peace. It's a source of hope. For non-believers who want to be rulers over their own life, and God does not sit on the throne of their life, it's going to become a throne of judgment for them. As believers, we're called to submit to the Lord, right? To obey his commandments to pick up our cross, to follow him, to deny ourselves, which is in direct contrast to what the world believes today. The enemy would have us believe, and does have most of the world believing, that we're in control of our own life, that we're the, the captain, if you will, of our fate, that we sit on the throne of our life. When we come to Christ as believers, we relinquish that throne. We relinquish that to him. We're no longer the Lord of our life. He is the Lord of our life. And we are his humble servants. Amen? Amen? But the strategy of Satan from the beginning has been to cause rebellion against God, to, to cause mankind to rebel against that authority, against that throne, against his sovereignty, against his rule, against his righteousness and justice, in an effort to rob mankind of eternal life by having man believe that you don't need God's grace to be saved. There's a thousand other ways you can get to heaven other than God, other than through Jesus. The enemy, well, for instance, just being a good person, right? The enemy tries to get us to put ourselves first, to think that we need to take control of our lives instead of submitting to God and, and relinquishing control to him. But I don't know about you. I need God's grace every single day of my life. And if I hadn't surrendered control of my life to Jesus I know that my life would have spiraled out of control by now. I don't know where I'd be today if it wasn't for my Lord and Savior. So I'm grateful that we can enter his throne room of grace. I'm grateful that we can receive that mercy and find grace in our time of need. Because to be honest with you, we need that every day, sometimes several times a day, don't we? And just one last thought about a throne. Thrones throughout the ages have come and gone, haven't they? Nebuchadnezzar is not sitting on a throne anymore, is he? Cyrus is not king anymore, is he, over Persia? Alexander the Great is not king over Greece anymore. Thrones come and go. We see that even in modern times. Monarchies come and go. But the throne of God always is, always has been, and always will be. It's there forever. So as John looks at the throne of God, this is what he sees. Look at verse 3. And he who sat there was like a jasper, 
and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So again, John, we're, we're seeing some imagery here that John uses or is used throughout the book of Revelation. But notice John doesn't describe God in a human form. Although we are made in his image, John doesn't see him in human form. He describes God as bright, vivid colors. And so what John's seeing is the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. It's so bright that John couldn't see any form. When Moses asked to see God's glory, this is what God told him. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live, Exodus 33:20. God allowed Moses to see his glory, but not his face. Man cannot see the face of God while he's in his full glory and live. Therefore, to protect Moses, to protect John, God's only going to reveal that portion of his majesty, that portion of his power that humanity is able to absorb. Otherwise, probably just burst into flames. So God, John rather, sees the glory of God, not his form, not his face, but he sees the brightness. He sees the awe and wonder of the glory of God. He sees colors. He sees God, or the throne room around the throne, is like jasper and sardius stone. And these two stones represent the glory of God. John will later see this jasper stone again in chapter 21. Having the glory of God... Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, Revelation 21.11. The brilliance of a jasper stone symbolizes the pure holiness of God. It tells us that God is untouched, unmarred, unscarred. God is perfect holiness. The blood red color of the sardius stone symbolizes, you want to take a shot at this? scholars of the Bible, the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the remission of our sins. So John sees the sinless, spotless, perfect Lamb of God who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins seated on a throne in heaven. Now, I don't believe it's a coincidence that these two stones are mentioned here because in Exodus 28, we see the stones in the breastplate of the high priest. There were 12 stones in the breastplate of the high priest. Anybody know what those 12 stones represented? 12 tribes of Israel. So the first stone, the sardius stone, in that breastplate was representative of Reuben, the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was the head of that clan. The name Reuben means, behold, a son. This last stone, the jasper stone, which represented the youngest of them was Benjamin. Now, notice at the throne, John sees the order reversed. He sees the younger first and then the older. The first will be last and the last shall be first. Benjamin's name means the son of my right hand or the son of my power. Both of those stones point us directly to Jesus, don't they? They both reveal something to us about Jesus. And when you put it together, Jesus is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega, who was and is and is to come. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Those two stones point us to that, symbolize that for us. 
He will come in power to judge the living and the dead. And John saw that jasper stone first, which represents the purity and the glory of Jesus, and the sardis stone second, which represents the shed blood of Christ. Listen, we can't be made perfect unless we're washed by the blood of Christ first. John sees a rainbow around the throne, a rainbow which is emerald green in color. Emerald represented the tribe of Judah. What tribe was Jesus from? The line of Judah. Judah was the tribe represented by that emerald stone in the breastplate. Judah means to praise. We will be praising the Lord for all eternity for what he's done for us. Amen? The rainbow, of course, is a symbol of God's sovereignty. But it's more than that. It's a symbol of his mercy and of his grace. Anybody remember what the rainbow was a symbol for in the Bible? Not what it's been perverted for today, but what it was originally designed for. A promise. That's exactly right. In Genesis chapter 9, we read, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. What an amazing promise that is. And what an amazing fact that God has that rainbow around his throne to always be there, to always, that promise is always before the Lord. It should remind us that God is on the throne at all times, in every situation, not only the situations we're going through now as a nation, as the world, but as individuals, the situations that you go through in your life, whether that be financial or marital, whatever the struggle is, God is on the throne and always was and always will be. God is in control. I love the way one commentator put this. He said, a throne says, I can do whatever I want because I rule. And isn't that the way most people who are granted power use that power? They say power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when you have that little bit of power, you feel like you can do anything you want. But a promise says, I will fulfill this word to you. I cannot do otherwise. A rainbow around the throne is a remarkable thing, showing that God will always limit himself by his own promises. Now, if there's any person anywhere who could do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, it's God. But yet God limits himself to the promises that he's made to us. How awesome is that? So it serves as a reminder to us that when we go into that throne room of grace, we see our Lord in all his glory and his mercy and his grace in, on the throne, in control, sovereign over all things. That's the way a believer sees him. That's the way we enter a throne room of grace. Or you can see him on his white throne of judgment where there is no mercy, where there is no grace, where there's only judgment for sin. Depending on your relationship with, with the Lord Jesus Christ will depend what you see will depend which throne you stand before. Amen? Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now I know this is going to come as a shock to you. But there's a lot of debate over this verse. 
scholars are, are divided every which way. I have a lot of commentaries on, on Revelation, and there's probably four or five different interpretations of this verse in there. They range from the 24 elders being angels to what you've probably heard, the most common interpretation of this, is that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. How many of you have heard that? I, that was something I believed for a long time. Also, it could represent the 24 courses of the priesthood that we find in Scripture. So, this is one of those places in Scripture where God is silent, isn't he? All he says to us is there's 24 elders on the throne. It bothers me, I know, so it must bother you. Who are the 24 elders? We're just curious, right? We've got to know who the 24 elders are. But God doesn't tell us who they are, but we don't stop there. We want to guess. We, we can't say, listen, we can't say with any certainty, dogmatically, who they are, but we do have some clues as to who they may be, okay? Now, I guess it's always fun to go down those little rabbit trails. As long as you don't get lost down there, you've got to come back sometimes. Just come back. Don't get lost. They're all clothed in white, aren't they? White, we've learned, is a symbol of purity and redemption. They're wearing crowns. Now, the Greek word here for those crowns is Stephanos. Stephanos is the crown of victory. So there's lamps of fire burning outside the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Where do we see that image before? The seven churches, right? So the 24 elders sound a lot like redeemed believers, don't they? And there are some scholars that think that these are 24 representatives of the church as a whole. I don't know how you get that position, because how many millions of believing Christians are there? I'm talking about throughout the ages, not just now. However, what if, what if they are just heavenly beings that we know nothing about? You think that's a possibility? That God doesn't have to tell us everything? If we look at the book of Daniel, we get some more clues. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, we read, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued from and came forth from before him. Thousands of thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Very important verse. Daniel is given a vision of the throne room of God as John is. Were the 24 thrones put out? We don't know. Maybe. It seems probable since John saw 24 of them, right? The court was seated. The court represents those thrones that were put out. And the books were opened. We don't know what books they were but the books were open. And it seems from Daniel's description that God convenes a heavenly court sometimes. And maybe that's to discuss the rule of who's ruling on this earth and what's going on in this earth. We don't know. Whatever they're discussing, whatever they're ruling on is written in those books. Listen to what the psalmist wrote. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly, heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, 
God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. The council of the holy ones. So again, heavenly beings are mentioned in reference to a council of God. Do we have something like that in the Bible? We have the Sanhedrin, don't we? That was a council who gathered together to discuss and to rule upon issues with the law, regarding the law. When we look at Daniel chapter 4, we get a little more insight into just who this council of judges may be. The decision is by the decree of the watchers, which we know are the angels, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, again, in order to give that the living may know what the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. He gives it to whoever he will and sets over it the lowliest, lowliest of men. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. So it appears that these holy ones of God, this council or this court, if you will, discussed who holds power in this world and possibly even into the next. And that makes sense when you read Daniel chapter 7, verse 26. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Speaking of the Antichrist. So the power over the nations of the earth, taken by the Antichrist, and the court seems to convene or to meet to discuss what's going on here on this earth. So the elders spoken here that John saw could very well be these holy ones spoken of by Daniel in the Bible. This heavenly court, this council that convenes every so often, who knows how often, is there to discuss the power structure of the world. It seems that way, doesn't it? And perhaps to even serve as a council of war, since they're meeting in heaven at the very time of the beginning of the tribulation. God's about to wage war on evil. And this council is gathered. That's what John sees. Here's a very interesting fact that I'm going to throw out here absolutely free. That's right. Not going to cost you a nickel for this. Satan may have once sat on one of those thrones. Listen to this verse in Isaiah, which speaks of the devil. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. Satan once had a throne in heaven. Very well, have, could very well have been part of this 24 elders. But listen, we don't know with any certainty. It's nice to look at things like this and, and think about it, but we don't know. I mean, this is one thing that you're going to know when you get to heaven, but it's not possible to know exactly who they are now. So I'm just throwing it out there for fun. You can fight over it later. Look at verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, seven lamps of fire which were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we already know from previous studies that the seven spirits of God is the who? Holy Spirit, right? So there's seven Holy Spirits. You're confusing me. There's not seven Holy Spirits. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is sevenfold. And we learn that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel, of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to note that the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, 
is sitting here among the 24 elders who are set up as a council, possibly even a council of war. God has ultimate authority, but what I find fascinating is that God assembles a council of elders to discuss these things. Isn't that amazing? There was a voice coming from around the throne, or voices. Daniel tells us a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Daniel 7, verse 10. The throne room of God's a pretty busy place, isn't it? It's got to be pretty loud. All those voices, thundering, lightning, amazing. How loud, how busy, how amazing it must have been to see. But John's at peace here, isn't he? He's not frightened like he was back in verse 1, in chapter 1, rather. John's at peace here. John's just taking it all in. The thundering and the lightning all around his throne, all those angels, and and especially when we get to the four living creatures, that's got to be a frightening place to be. But John's at perfect peace. You know, I believe that when we go into the throne room of God's grace, and we sit on his lap to tell him what's going on and, and ask him for help, ask him for his grace and his mercy, I believe that his vo- our voice is the only voice that he hears. Even amongst the thundering, even amongst the lightning, even among the 10,000s and 10,000 times 10,000, our voice, your voice, my voice, individually, are the only voice that God hears. He treats us like we're the only one there because from his perspective, we are the only one there. That's how special you and I are to the Lord. Amen? And I bet you the next time you get down and pray and you enter that throne room of grace, you'll look at it a little differently, won't you? All power. Think about the power and the might and the majesty that emanates from that throne. Do you know that's the same power and might that we have access to when we enter into the throne room of grace? But yet we think, eh, I don't know if you can answer this one, God. This might be a little tough for you. Think about who you're going to. Think about who you're praying before. Think about how awesome and mighty and powerful that he is. There is none like him. That's who we're going through. You know, recently I did one of those puzzles on social media, because I'm retired now. But it's like, it's the one where you look at, it has all the jumbled words on it, and and you had to pick out the first three words you saw. Yeah, I know. Pray for me. (laughs) So the words I saw were power, strength, and the word through. Now, that became significant for me because I just finished the book of Philippians studying, and it says it is through who? Christ, that we, that strengthens me, right? It's, It's through him that we're strengthened. Our power, our strength comes from him, so we can go to that throne room of grace anytime we need his power and strength in our lives to overcome anything troubling us or tempting us in our life. Amen? Please listen. The throne room of God's grace is not a frightful, scary place for believers. It is a place of peace and hope and comfort. But for those who do not believe, it is a place that quakes. It is a place that rumbles. It is a place that 
is lit up by lightning, it is a place of judgment. And it can be and will be a very frightening and scary place to be if you find yourself standing before his throne room, the great, throne, the great white throne judgment one day. Look at verse 6, the very first part of verse 6. Before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. So John notices a sea of glass, and he notices that that sea is like crystal, crystallized. Now, we've already discussed that crystal represents God's purity and holiness, right? When you looked at the temple, as you're going into the, the temple, and we'll take the temple in the wilderness, for example, because it's a little easier to, to see it from there. But one of the first things you would come to is the bronze laver, or it's called the, cat, the sea of cast metal in 1 Kings. That's where the priests would wash themselves. It was a mikvah. It was a ceremonial ritual cleaning. They would wash themselves to purify themselves before they entered into the Holy of Holies or into the holy place. So this sea, if you will, was used to purify the priest before they entered the temple. And John sees this sea in heaven is now crystal, no longer water. No longer there to purify anyone because we've all, anyone there now is washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're purified by his blood. We've already been purified. We've already been sanctified. And there's no reason for us to now purify us. So the sea of glass, like crystal, is there to remind us of our purity before God. Look at the second part of verse 6 and verse 7. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf or an ox, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So we're going to meet these four living creatures again in chapter 6. They're involved in the opening of the seals, the seal judgments. But we also see them in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, we read, As for the likeness of their faces, each had a face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, each of the four had a face of an eagle. Thus were the faces. Their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and the two covered their bodies, and each one was straight forward, and went, they went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. So Ezekiel believed them to be cherubim. Cherubs, I just want to tell you, are not those cute, pudgy little angels that shoot arrows into your loved one's heart on Valentine's Day. They're not. And they're warrior angels. And I'm pretty sure that they're not happy with the way man has depicted them over the years. These are the angels that God stationed outside the Garden of Eden with flaming swords. They are very large and they were very menacing warrior angels. These are angels that you do not want to mess with. These are not angels that just fly around and like little cupids and fire angels at Valentine's Day. So Ezekiel and John both see these beings with four faces, like a lion, an ox, an eagle and a man, and that's significant because, again, there is no coincidences with God. The lion speaks of power, 
the ox speaks of patience, the eagle of swiftness, and man, some men anyway, of intelligence. It's interesting to note, when the Israelites camped in the desert, they had the same banners that represented those 12 tribes. So each of the 12 tribes were divided up into groups, right? And there were four groups of them. Reuben marched under the banner of the face of a man. Dan marched under the banner of the face of an eagle. Ephraim marched under the banner of the face of an ox. And Judah marched under the banner of the face of a lion. We also see in the four Gospels that these very same faces represent the characteristics of Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is represented by man. And Matthew describes the humanity of Jesus to us. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is represented as the lion. And Mark describes Jesus as king to us. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is represented by the calf or the ox. And Luke describes Jesus to us as the suffering servant. And in John's Gospel, Jesus is represented by the eagle, and John describes Jesus to us as the Messiah, as God, as majestic over all. So I don't think it's any coincidence that these four living beings have the four faces of the banners in the wilderness and of the four characteristics of Jesus in the Gospels. Remember, the book of Revelation points us to Jesus, doesn't it? This whole book that you hold on your lap points us to Jesus, Yet there's many who believe that they're fables and stories and man invented it and man designed it and man created it. Listen, from Genesis to Revelation, this book has one theme. The man needs a savior and that savior is Christ Jesus. That's the theme of the Bible. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus had a Bible study with his disciples. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them on all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus took those two disciples through all the books that they had currently at that time and showed them in Genesis right on through the prophets where he was pictured, where he was revealed in those books. What an amazing Bible study that must have been. The author of Hebrews wrote that Jesus said this during his ministry, the volume of this book is written of me, Hebrews 10.7. The psalmist wrote in the Messianic Psalm, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, Psalm 40, verse 7. So the, the book of Revelation, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, and especially the book of Revelation, it reveals Jesus. And in the book of Revelation specifically reveals Jesus as king. He is no longer the suffering servant. He is no longer a suffering servant to a world that does not know him, who has rejected him. And if they, can, they could know him, they could know him, he would reveal himself to them if they just searched for him in his word. They would see the love. They would see the mercy. They would see the grace of our Lord and Savior, not his judgment. But if they go through this life and they refuse to see him who he really is and know him for who he is, they will see him as judge. Because whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, whether you're willing to bow your knee to him now or not, you will see him at the end. You will see him as king and you will bow your knee to him as judge. Amen? So these four living beings are not some sci-fi creation. They are warrior 
angels they appear to be, and they're going to be used in the judgment of mankind. Look at verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So they have eyes all around, which is a symbol of their awareness and their alertness. There's nothing that escapes their view. They have, because of that, they have greater insight and perception than any man alive. Their wings may symbolize their swiftness in carrying out God's plan, God's judgment, God's will. And so they're right before the throne of God, ready to do whatever God commands them to do. But we also see them praising God. Day and night, without rest, for all eternity, they praise God saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is holy. The Hebrew word for holy literally, literally means to be separate or to be set apart. We're called to be holy, aren't we? We're called to be separated. We're called to be set apart from this world. When we talk about God's holiness, we, we are talking about his absolute purity. God is unstained by sin. God is untouched by evil. God is perfect in every way, meaning that everything he does, everything he says is pure and right. This means that the commands in the Bible for how do we are to conduct ourselves is a reflection of God's holy nature, isn't it? God gives us our commands for our good. His commands are for us to help us pursue that holiness. There's times in my life when I don't feel very holy. I don't know about you. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I might be the only one up here with my hand up. <coughs> His commands set a standard for us for what it means to be holy. We wouldn't know what it meant to be holy unless we saw that in the Bible, in those commands, right? Even if they show us just how far short we fall of that standard of holiness. But because we fall short of it sometimes, his righteous commands draw us to the only person who ever fulfilled all of those commands, who was perfect and righteous and holy in all his ways, and that's Christ Jesus. So our faith in Christ makes us holy before God. It gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to pursue holiness throughout our life in this walk. Amen? God is almighty. In Hebrew, God Almighty is El Shaddai. It's one of his names, and it means God, the all-powerful one. Now, the name for God tells us that he is all-powerful, that he's above all things, that he has no limitations. God can never create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it himself. You've all heard that stupid expression? Well, I just sent it forward. In Exodus Chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, we read, God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. This is an amazing verse because God, whom Israel only knew as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, had given Moses and Israel, and by the way, us as well, a new, more personal more intimate name for himself, Lord. 
that personal relationship that they now have with God, that we have with God, would be established and culminated later when he sent his only son to this earth, God in the flesh, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. So think about that. what that means for a minute. Think about God Almighty, El Shaddai, all-powerful, almighty, without limitation, coming to this earth as one of us, weak, tempted, with limitations, and humbled himself to the point of death so that you and I, by his death, could be set free from the bondages of our sin, could be freed and washed clean, purified and sanctified by his blood. That's what Almighty God, El Shaddai, All-Powerful One, no limitations, did for us. The fact that Almighty God would humble himself for us makes his name even more amazing, doesn't it? And God is eternal. Being eternal simply means everlasting, to have no beginning and no end. We know that God always was, always is, and always will be. So what does that mean for us? I love the way one commentator puts this. The sun and heavenly bodies continue in their orbits century after century. The seasons come and go in their appointed time. The trees produce leaves in spring and drop them in the fall. Year after year, these things continue, and no one can stop them or alter God's plan. It means that God's always control, in control, and, and things will continue until God changes them. And we believe, I believe, that we're very close to the rapture of the church. But the very fact of the matter is, no one knows the day or the hour. And what we're seeing all around us will either continue, pushing us even closer to that, or God steps in and says, time out, it's not ready to change, and he reverses it for some reason. Only he knows, and that's what makes him God, and that's what puts him on the throne. Amen? We know from the book of Revelation, because we know the last chapter, that one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be with our holy, almighty, eternal God forever and ever and ever. And what's amazing about this chapter especially is we get to see a little glimpse of that, a little preview. It's like a brochure. God put a brochure in the Bible for us. And I'm pretty sure it's not like the brochures you get at the campsites that have this wonderful place, and then you get there and everything's falling apart, and there's a Hell's Angels motorcycle group next to you. This brochure looks better in person than it does in words. Amen? Amen. Look at verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne to, and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So these four living beings worship God. And by the way, heaven is a place filled with worship. So if you don't like worshiping in your life today, or in church, or even in your home, i got bad news for you in heaven. We won't need worship leaders in heaven. Just the very sight of the Lord will cause us to want to worship him. But the four living creatures worship him, and as they begin to worship him, the 24 elders, whoever they are, fall on their face 
before the throne worshiping God. Praising him, praising his eternal nature, casting their crowns before him. Those crowns mean something to those elders. Yet they know there is one in that room who is more worthy, one who sits on that throne. And it's because of him and only him that we have those crowns. I remember a little girl, and, and only by the, from the mouth of a babe, right? She asked her dad one time, if we have crowns, if Jesus gives us crowns, why do we have to give them back at the end of time? Great question. And the answer, of course, is because we would never have those crowns if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. It's because of him that we have those crowns, so it's only fitting that we lay them at his feet. But in heaven is all about praising and worshiping and honoring God. So for us as believers, worship isn't something we just do on Sunday, is it? It's not something that we do one time a week. It's something that we're supposed to do every day. Day by day, moment by moment. From the time our feet hit the floor to the time our head hits the pillow, we should be worshiping God. Worship begins with the renewing of our minds and our hearts, doesn't it? And it grows as we realize who God is and how much he loves us. And we realize his mercy and his grace in our lives. It causes us to humble ourselves, doesn't it? It, makes, it should make us humble. It should make us want to just fall to our knees and, and praise him and bow our heads in, in prayer to him and in thankfulness to him for who he is and what he's done in our lives. It should cause us to want to lift up our hands and, and praise him with our lips, but more importantly, to honor him with our lives. The worship of God Almighty is done and should be done with our whole being. To love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. And then put that same effort into loving our neighbor as ourselves. If we're missing just one of those pieces, our worship's hindered. Joanne keeps falling asleep. Just nudge her, Missy. Here's the good news. The good news is that his mercies are new every day. And we can begin our day today. Today's a new day, right? We can begin our worship of him today. Just like the 24 elders. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We are his creation. We're far more than that as his sons and daughters, his children, but we are his creation, and he is worthy of our praise. So I'm going to ask you to stand. <clears throat> now that you're all falling, trying to fall asleep, wake up a little bit. And in conclusion, that should draw you back in. Those are the magic words. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 148. We don't have it up on the screen, so you're actually going to have to look in a Bible or on your phone or in your tablet or next to your neighbor. Let's read this together, Psalm 148. You all there? It's right between 147 and 149. Just, Just... I'm going to try to be helpful. Helpy helper today, call me. 
I love the way the psalm begins. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him from the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. And he has exalted the horn of his people. The praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near him. Praise the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. The thing I love the most about this psalm is that it begins with praise the Lord and it ends with praise the Lord. And that's certainly how we were going to be every day in heaven. And our days... Well, there will be no days, but our time there will begin with praising the Lord, and it will never end as we praise the Lord for all eternity. Amen? Amen. So the last couple of weeks, we've just been discussing the rapture. I think, I believe, it is my responsibility, my burden that the Lord has placed upon my heart to prepare you for the rapture, so that you're rapture ready. Part of that involves our worship, the worship of, of our, you know, how we worship the Lord with our lives because I can guarantee you that we will be worshiping him with our lips for the rest of eternity worshiping him praising him for the fact that he's going to take his church out of here his bride out of here from and spare us from a fate that's going to come upon a world that's rejected Jesus Christ for those who have placed our faith in him we know that we're going to be saved from the wrath of God because Jesus paid for our sin. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross as punishment for our sins so that we do not have to face the wrath of God. So that by the grace of God, the church, his bride, the body, will be raptured or caught up off of this earth before the great tribulation begins. And listen, there are people out there who mock us for believing that there is a pre-tribulation rapture. They actually mock us. But I will continue to preach that, and we can all argue about it on the way up one day. And I'm sure that those who believe in other, the mid-trib and the post-trib and everything in between, will. I don't think they're going to be complaining if we go before the tribulation. I really don't. I don't think it's going to be, oh, man, I really wanted to see the end of this. But if you want to know with all certainty that you are rapture ready, it is as easy as A, B, C. And we always present the gospel at the end of these messages for the very reason that I want everyone, everyone who hears the sound of my voice, to be rapture ready. And it begins with admitting that you are a sinner, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Now today in the message we discuss the holiness of God. Is there anyone here who believes that they meet that standard of holiness in their lives? No one can. 
No one is perfect. It's a perfect standard of holiness and righteousness. And none of us are perfect. Your wife might tell you from time to time that you're perfect, but she's just lying to you. She wants you to clean the garage. Romans 3.10 tells us, as it is written, there is none righteous, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that tells us right there that none of us meet that standard. The only way to meet that standard is to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his purity, his holiness is then given to us. It covers us. So that when God looks upon us, he no longer sees us in our sinful nature. Before God, our position is perfect and holy and righteous because we are covered by the blood of Christ. And so secondly, B, believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sin. That's important because without his death on the cross, without his payment for that sin, we'd all still be dead in our trespasses and sin. We'd all still be found guilty before God. Romans 10, verses 11, 10 through 11 say, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So right there, Paul tells us that when you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins, it is for righteousness. We're made righteous by him. So once you admit that you're a sinner, once you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, call upon his name, and that's the C. To call out to Jesus, to confess that you cannot do this on your own, that it's not through any works that you could possibly do that the only way to heaven is through him. And I don't say that. He said that. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. Where's the Father? In heaven. No one comes to heaven. No one gets to heaven. No one gets past that front gate unless they go through him. And that means to put your faith in him, to submit to him, to surrender to him. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead... You will be saved. That's a promise. And remember, God won't change his promises. Once he says it, that's it. He's not going to turn from that promise. You can take that to the bank. That's better than gold. Better than precious stones. Better than hitting the lottery. God said it, and it will be done. There's no he will not go back on his word. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God says that if you call upon his name and you ask him to be Lord and Savior and submit to him, you will be saved. Now, if all of this is, went right over your head, but you want to give your heart to Jesus Christ and you don't know how to put it into words, we're going to pray a little prayer here. And if you pray this prayer, there's nothing magical about this prayer. There's nothing magical about these words. If you pray this prayer with all your heart, that you want Jesus to come into your heart and be your Lord and Savior, if you want to submit your life to Jesus Christ, surrender to him, and pray this prayer with me. Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. And I turn from my sin, repent of it, and turn to you, Lord Jesus, and ask you to be my Lord and Savior. I submit my heart to you I surrender my life to you fill me now Lord with your Holy Spirit 
to help me to walk this walk, to help me to submit and to obey. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your gift of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. And thank you, Lord, for welcoming me into your kingdom as one of your children. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand, worship the Lord. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. You are now rapture ready. God bless you. As I say, I'll either see you here or see you in the air.